0: Hey, what's going on everyone? I'm Brad Johnson, your host here at Corner Table Talk, where we explore subjects related to food plus drink plus culture. We'd love to get your questions and your comments. You can always reach me at brad at postandbeamhospitality.com. And of course, some of the other socials like Instagram or Facebook, check those too. So reach out when you have something to say or ask. I first found out about my guest today, a couple of years ago. I don't remember the publication, but I read an article about him being the first African American in the United States to be granted a license to make liquor post-prohibition. This was 2011. Mind you, prohibition ended in 1933, almost 80 years ago. That is a story in and of itself, possibly for another day. After a cancer scare that turned out to be a benign tumor in his spine, my guest quit his job as an advertising executive and with no formal training or background in the beverage industry, began to make Sorrel liqueur. Interesting story, I thought. Not to mention, I really love Sorrel and am sure to bring some home anytime I visit any of my Jamaican spots for uh, Jamaican takeout. So fast forward a few years, and I receive an email from L.A.-based hospitality public relations sharpshooter, Skylar O'Kee, who asked if I'd consider having Jackie Summers on Corner Table Talk. I knew the name but couldn't pinpoint from where until I read Skylar's description of Jackie and realized this was the same guy that I had read about previously. Jackie's story is inspirational full of stops and starts, natural disasters, COVID, reluctant investors, accolades, getting knocked down, and having the determination to get back up, guided by the spirit of his ancestors and a strong desire to bring Sorel, a widely known but never before distilled and distributed beverage with its roots in Africa, to people all over the world. In 2021, Jackie took a major step towards realizing that goal. He teamed up with the powerhouse Fawn Weaver, the owner of Uncle Nearest Premium Whiskey, and the Tennessee-based Nearest Green Distillery, and we will get into that story. Brooklyn, New York-based, Jackie Summers is here today, and it is my pleasure to welcome Jackie to Corner Table Talk. What's happening, Jackie? Man, it's a pleasure to talk to you. I'm such a fan. Oh, man, it's so great to have you. So we kick things off here, Jackie, with what I call our short order questions. So let me ask you, what are you currently listening to, man?
1: What's on your playlist? Kendrick Lamar at the moment is getting heavy rotation on the playlist. But the truth of the matter is most of my playlist is 30 years old because 90s R&B hip hop just killed it, just killed it.
0: Yeah, that's so funny. My son, who's 34, was just visiting, and he played several tracks from Kendrick. Man, that, that album is deep.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Kendrick is no joke. I'm feeling it.
0: No, no joke.
1: Okay, how about
0: the first thing that you consume in the morning, the first beverage that you consume? What's that?
1: I do a mix of butterfly tea leaves with hibiscus that gets a cold brew and I have a gallon of it every single day. So my first beverage every day is 12 to 16 ounces, as cold as possible, of this purple water, which is just full of antioxidants, and antimicrobials, and anti-inflammatories, and all sorts of good stuff. Oh, I love that,
0: man. We're gonna get into some hibiscus, but what are, you said butterfly leaf flower? What is that?
1: Butterfly P.T. leaves turn everything blue. So it's three fourths butterfly tea leaves to one part hibiscus flowers for purple water.
0: I love that, man, and the anti-inflammatory, that works. So how about your diet? Vegan, vegetarian, flexitarian, or other?
1: You know, it's hard to be vegan with the industry and what we do. I'm in different cities every single week. Sometimes I'm in several time zones in the same week. I try not to eat anything with a brain stem. So lots of mollusks, uh, lots of seafood, oysters, clams. But the truth of the matter is, I realize that's a privilege. And while I try to be conscious about what I eat, at the end of the day, I eat what's in front of me.
0: You're a good guest, too, I presume. when You eat over other people's house, so that, that's good. So how about your favorite Brooklyn restaurant? I know the food scene in Brooklyn is booming, and I know you're on the road a lot. But where do you like to eat when you're home?
1: Favorite Brooklyn restaurant? Can I go New York City, not Brooklyn? please. There is a new Indian spot called Damaka that is fantastic. I cannot remember the last time I've been this excited to go to a place. It is the kind of Indian cuisine that has entirely not been filtered down for American tastes. It is bold, it is inventive, it is exciting, and I cannot wait to go back to Damaka.
0: I'm making notes as we speak. That is now at the top of my list for my next New York City visit, man. That's fantastic. And Jackie, I know you're a great cook. I've read your passion for food. Tell me, what's your signature dish? What do you cook? You got to roll the sleeves up and show people what you're capable of.
1: Mostly when I cook for myself, I'm watching my boy's figure. So it's fish and greens and lean proteins. But If I want to show off, oxtail my ting. Be throw down on some oxtail, you Oh man, a good
0: tender oxtail and a good gravy. Oh boy, you got me. All right, let's, let's jump in here. So how are you and where are you?
1: I am having a good day. I'm in Brooklyn, New York City. It is bright and sunny. It's a good day.
0: Love that, man.
1: Jackie, to get us
0: started, can you describe what Sorrel is? where it comes from, and break down the difference between Sorrel, S-O-R-R-E-L, and Sorrel, S-O-R-E-L.
1: This is a great question. So if you go back 500 years, West Africans knew hibiscus to be a powerful medicinal plant. Again, full of antimicrobials, full of antioxidants, natural source of vitamin C. It's a natural aphrodisiac. And they would make a tea from this flower and this was part of their ceremony and their traditions. And then around 500 years ago, the transatlantic slave trade starts and bodies and spices are stolen from the continent of Africa. This flower, the hibiscus flower, takes physical roots in the Caribbean islands, but the people who knew what to do with it were transported along with it in the bottom of ships. So. Every island ends up doing a slightly different version of what comes to be known as sorrel, S-O-R-E-L. And you would get a version that was based on what spices were being traded through the ports and what indentured servants were working there. For example, if you go to Jamaica, which had a large influx of indentured Chinese workers, you would get a version of sorrel with, of course, ginger and allspice and cardamom and rum because everything in Jamaica rum. If you went deeper into the Caribbean, say Trinidad and Tobago, you would get a version of again, hibiscus with East Indian influences like cinnamon and nutmeg, but not as much rum. The Trinidadians aren't as big a drinkers as the Jamaicans are. Nobody is. My grandparents came from Barbados a hundred years ago and my grandfather was a chef. So I learned about the culinary traditions from my mother was taught by my grandfather. I made a version of Sorrel in my kitchen, like a good Bayesian for almost 20 years and did not think twice about it. It is a product now because I made the first ever shelf stable version of this beverage. You can open it, close it, come back in a year and it does not go bad. So the difference between Sorrel and Sorrel, uh, aside from the pronunciation, is Sorrel is basically the same exact thing, but refined for, I don't want to say public taste, but for public consumption in that it does not go bad. Gotcha.
0: Gotcha. Thank you for that. So as you mentioned, your family originally from Barbados in the 20s, your dad was a jazz pianist who played with Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington, Billie Holiday. And your mom, who I believe is still alive, was a research scientist. And I read that there was always a picture of Sorrel around your house as they would add a little rum to it once the kids went to bed. And your mom and dad had two very different but interesting career paths. So before we get into the Sorrel, talk about your home life. Food was a big part of it. And of course, food tells a story. What was home life like for you growing up, Jack?
1: The beauty of my home life was that both of my parents were entirely devoted to each other. I had a very, as it goes, normal childhood with two parents who loved each other deeply and truthfully paved the way for what I do in ways I can never begin to understand. I know that I moved through the world as a beneficiary of the work that they did and the examples that they set in that they raised a family not just through the depression, but through the civil rights movement. My parents were able to buy a house before segregation was officially declared illegal. My parents fought for civil rights in March. My parents fought battles I never have to fight. And that is largely what allows me to do what I do today. So I move forward every day with gratitude and an obligation to pay back what's been given to me.
0: I hear you, man. That generation was really something else. I don't know how old you are, but I'm in my sixties and my folks, my dad was born in 1925, my mom in 1932, and uh, what they went through to pave the way for us to have this life was really something. There's, there's also been a lot written, Jackie, about the origins, pathways and attempts to define black food over the past several years, culminating recently with the Netflix show, of course, High on the Hog. And as a person of Caribbean descent, growing up in Queens and Brooklyn, when did you recognize Caribbean cuisine and culture as something unique? And when did you first become curious about its roots?
1: I remember being a child, five years old, on the streets of Brooklyn at Labor Day weekend, where they would do Caribbean Day Parade every single year. This was an event that my parents took us to religiously, and there would be two million people of Caribbean descent out on the streets of Eastern Parkway, and there were floats, and there were parades, and there was music, and there was dancing, and there were spectacular costumes, but mostly there was food. And I remember being a small child and stuffing my face with beef patty and roti and rice and peas and oxtail and washing all of this down with sorrow and thinking to myself, this is who I am. This is me. This food is who I am. One of the things that is important to me to stress is this country has finally gotten to a point where they are willing to admit that it owes the majority of its food culture to African-Americans. What it has not yet gotten to admit is that 95% of African Americans who ended up in this country went through the Caribbean. So there is a mix of African and indigenous spices and cooking techniques that become the basis of what we think of as soul food.
0: Absolutely, man. I know Ambassador's ears are ringing as we're talking about that because she is a lover of the Caribbean and family originates from the places in the Caribbean as well. To me, Sorel might be an acquired taste for a young palate. When did you first realize that you had a taste for it?
1: The alcoholic version or the non alcoholic version?
0: I don't want to get you in trouble, man. Let's say the non alcoholic version.
1: Five years old, I knew there is something that is incredibly refreshing about hibiscus flowers that have been brewed. My grandparents came from a tropical climate. My great-grandparents were enslaved, came from Ghana. So hibiscus-based drinks are very popular in these places where it's hot all the time, and there's very few things that are as refreshing as a good, not too sugary hibiscus drink.
0: Yeah, that is the key. The sugar content I found does vary from place to place. And sometimes it can be a little heavy on the sugar, but I sip mine, we'll get a couple of those little eight ounce, 10 ounce containers and just leave them in the fridge and my wife and I will take our shots and try to stretch it out three or four days, but uh, yeah, it sometimes gets a little sugary. So you're working in corporate America, initially in finance, I believe, and then publishing. You had this cancer scare, which was terrifying. I mean, you had a golf ball sized tumor that was lodged in your spine. You underwent an eight hour operation. You regain consciousness and you hear the word benign. You've had several brushes with death. I found out in listening to some of your conversations and reading about you over the course of your life, but talk about your mindset. When you hear that you don't have cancer, and what led you to deciding to become a distiller, which is a pretty significant departure from your previous life? You've mentioned an opportunity to merge your two passions social justice, advocacy, and making liqueur. But just take us to that moment, Jackie, where you regain consciousness. You hear the word benign, and you think this is time for a new chapter in my life.
1: So, one of the things that's off the records that we can talk about is what I did right before my surgery. I had this doctor tell me that I had a 95% chance of death because of a tumor in my spine. And after I consented to the surgery, I did the only thing that made sense to me and I went on vacation. Me and nine friends in a beach house in Cancun and some of the best food I've ever eaten and shopping costs full of alcohol. And I remember waking up one morning and deciding to have a sunrise walk on the beach because I thought I was going to die and was never going to get to do it again. And I grabbed the bottle of Mezcal, kicked off my shoes, watched the sunrise over the Gulf of Mexico, and had a good talk with death. And death had interesting things to say at six o'clock in the morning on half a bottle of Mezcal. But the thing I remember her saying, and it's a her, she's never wrong. The thing I remember her saying most clearly of all is, "Jack." I don't know where this has you so freaked out. It's not the first time I've come for you. It's just the first time you're paying attention. So I made peace entirely with the idea of my own death. I remember waking up from the surgery, hearing the word benign and thinking to myself, I'm living today, but I'm still going to die. So it no longer matters to me when or how I die. What matters is what happens in between now and then. And I didn't want to waste one more day in a cubicle, in an office, doing things I didn't really like around people I wasn't fond of for not nearly enough money. Brad, what I really wanted to do was day drink. And when I couldn't figure out who was going to pay me to enjoy that lifestyle, I launched a liquor brand, and here we are. That's
0: great, man. Day drinking was the inspiration. It's a funny uh, end to the story, Jackie, but no question a profound experience to come that close. And listening to your story of going to Cancun and the Moscow and your friends, and I think that's probably what I would do if I knew that I was facing something like that. I'd, whatever was on that bucket list, whatever I needed to do, wherever I needed to go that I hadn't been, I would probably do the same thing, man. But I love that. Good move. So as I alluded to in the intro, this was 2011, I believe 2011, 2012, almost 80 years after prohibition. And at this point, you become the first black person in the United States granted a license to make liquor. It's amazing it took that long. And a former executive from Seagram's had this to say about you in an article, It didn't take him long to realize that there was injustice in the business and women and people of color did not get their fair share or place in the industry. Most people would just shrug, look away and do their thing. Not Jackie. He committed himself to speak out and to work with companies and organizations to raise awareness of the problem and find ways to correct it, end quote. And then a quote from you, Jackie, and I'll get your comment on the other side. You say. Quote, you can't teach people don't be racist because no one thinks of themselves as racist. You have to teach people to be actively anti-racist because we exist in a system that is racist. So unless you are actively anti-racist, you are passively contributing to a racist system. Once you have that realization, you can ask, what else am I passively contributing to? to that is in some way marginalizing somebody. This opens up the whole world, end quote. There's a lot there, man. Were you aware you would be the first when you began pursuing that idea? And talk about the structural challenges you ran into as the first Black person to enter the booze-making industry.
1: I had no idea that there weren't other Black people doing this. Because I know that we have been making alcohol for centuries. So when I found out, when I got my license and looked around and didn't see anyone who looked like me, and I began to ask questions, it was startling to realize that I was the first. But when you think about what goes into getting a license to make liquor, it's really not hard to believe. The barriers are systemic. Unless you have a million dollars lying around, and I I did not have a million dollars lying around, or unless you come from a liquor family, it is very close to impossible to acquire a distilled spirits plant permit. The only thing that I have really going for me is that I come from people who did impossible things as a matter of living. And this is the thing that I learned from my parents is it is just about trying to get through the day. It is not about trying to inspire. It is not about trying to set some kind of historical legacy. It's about trying to live. My father was trying to live. My mother was trying to live. And they did what they had to do. They did not think of it as special. I don't think of what I did or what I do as special. I am trying to live and make life better for those. What point
0: were you in the development of your Sorrel brand when Hurricane Sandy hit? I read that there was six feet of seawater in the basement and five feet on the first floor. So what happened and talk about your rebuilding process up to the point where you reached out to Fawn Weaver.
1: Six months in, Hurricane Sandy decimated my distillery and insurance didn't pay a dime and FEMA did not pay a dime. Basically put the entire thing back together with sweat and volition and every last cent I had a really good run from 2013 to 2015. Got several bad business deals. Took a pause on production, and then, as you mentioned, in 2021, was in the process of seeking better partnerships, and came into contact with Vaughn Weaver. And God bless her. I will never forget. And with all my heart, I talked to all of the top people in the liquor industry who loved my product. And wish me the best of luck with it. Fawn Weaver is the person who decided, I'm going to step in and personally put this product and this guy back into the game. So again, God bless Fawn Weaver. I would say. So what do
0: you think sold Fawn on your product and you when others were so reluctant?
1: There were two things that really sold Fawn. The first is, it was delicious. I sent her a bottle and it was just she really appreciated the fact that it is a delicious product that should be on shelves. And when she looked at the business plan that I'd sent, she realized that there was implicit bias that I was facing for being a dark skinned black man from Brooklyn. And she realized that this was the primary impediment to people agreeing to work with me and or finance my projects. She did not see this as an impediment. She saw it as part of aligning with her own narrative of making sure that African-Americans in this country get the credit they deserve for our culinary contributions. So in that sense, my purpose aligns entirely with her own.
0: I would say, man. And Jackie, the story of Nearest Green, who taught a young Jack Daniel. The craft of distilling is indicative of how African American contributions and experiences are often overlooked and exploited historically. I just read an interview last weekend in the New York Times with Tom Hanks, who only recently became aware of the Tulsa massacre. The implications of a large portion of the population not knowing about this, that it could be kept out of the mainstream flow of information, are just wide ranging. But closer to our subject today, A couple of years ago, while reading Alice Randall's Black Bottom Saints, I discovered Thomas Bullock, who was the first African-American to write a cocktail book, The Ideal Bartender, which was published in 1917. I see you nodding your head, so you obviously knew about him. I had never heard of him, man, despite all my years in hospitality. So how do you fit your endeavor to celebrate the story of Sorrel? into an historical context.
1: The beautiful thing about Sorel is it is 500 years of joy and persistence in a bottle. The people that were stolen from the continent of Africa, they took everything from those humans. They took their names, they took their religion, they broke up families, they did everything that they could to destroy that culture. And yet somehow this beverage survived. Surrell is proof that the culture could not be destroyed. And there's nothing more important to me than telling that story of this joy and persistence and the resilience of our people. Surrell is proof that we're here to stay.
0: Yeah. And I see the alignment with Uncle Nearest. Who knew that story about Nearest Green and Jack Daniel? Were you aware of Thomas
1: Bullock? Not only was I aware of Thomas Bullock, but we also get credit for inventing dive bars. The first dive bars were juke joints out in the back of plantations because we weren't allowed to drink in public spaces. So it isn't just cocktail culture, it's dive bar culture as well. If a person had a private chef, and they all did, on their plantation who fixed their food and they had guests by and they said, let me get you a drink. They weren't making the drink. They had a boy to do that. So all of the food and all of the drinks were made by people who look like us. So
0: talk about the product, your product, if you will, and how you see marketing this to a broad consumer base. How could imagine Uncle Nearest's involvement and Fawn's involvement? They did a pretty good job of marketing that product but how you see marketing it and you go to like influencer mixologist just and tell me
1: what the response
0: has been out there.
1: The response to Sorrel has been nominally well. In the past six months we have in the footsteps of Uncle Neris entered international competition to vet ourselves against the best of the best. So far we have won 24 gold or better medals for Sorrel in international competition. I'm seeing it in golf clubs. I'm seeing it in hotel chains. I'm seeing it in restaurant chains. It is in some of the finest places. The marketing is, it's delicious. The story comes with it as well. But the marketing is, this is something that will go with everything in your back bar. Gin, rum, vodka, mezcal, tequila, scotch rye, whiskey, sake, whatever you put Sorel with, it does one thing especially well, and that is hide the alcohol. So if you put Sorel in a gin cocktail, you'll get more floral notes. If you put it with rum or whiskey, you'll get more barrel notes. If you put Sorel with sake, you'll get more rice notes. Whatever you mix Sorel with, it's going to hide the alcohol, and highlight the flavor.
0: Yeah, sounds like it could be a little dangerous too if that alcohol is hidden too much. I'm reaching for a few extra glasses. (laughs) So what would you say, Jackie, at this point is your biggest challenge?
1: The biggest challenge is we are getting from market to market, and at the moment, it's just me doing the launches. So we're launching 14 markets this quarter which basically means I'll be traveling every single week for the next nine weeks. And I do not mean that as a complaint. I feel it is a great privilege that I get to do this thing, which I really love. And I get to spread the story, but Holy crap, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. And I'm looking forward to expanding our team so we can have more bodies. We can send out into the market to help tell this story and help people learn how to use this beverage. What's the typical meeting that you have out on the road? Who are you meeting with? So usually what happens is we'll meet with distributors and distributors will set up meetings with their A-list clients, the best restaurants and the best retailers. Getting distributors on your side is the really big trick. Distributors like to distribute, but if you can convince them, and that is something that we're getting very good at, that you are winning, everybody loves a winner. And at the moment, nobody, and I do mean this literally outside of Uncle Nearest, nobody is winning more awards for their liquor product than Cirelli
0: Have those pathways to distribution opened up more recently for, and what would be the reason? Obviously, Uncle Nearest broke down some doors. You are seeing more distillers of color come online, but what's your impression of that in the 10 years or so you've
1: been in the business? So the year that I launched Sorel was the year Trayvon Martin was murdered, and it made it clear to me that I had an opportunity to use my platform to speak about social ills. And It was an interesting thing in that, as you mentioned earlier, I try to teach people to be anti-racist, but in the process, I thought to myself, am I actually anti-sexist? And while I wasn't actively doing anything that might be considered sexist, I wasn't actively anti-sexist, and I was passively contributing to the patriarchy. And that was a revelation for me in that it opened up all of the other blind spots that I can contribute. So one of the things that I tried to do, and that I've tried to do both with my writing and with sorella's platform, is take a stand for social issues it is not enough to sell a lot of alcohol. That is something that lots of people can do. But if I can try to make the world an even slightly better place for underserved communities, that's a much better purpose at the end of the day than getting people
0: inebriated. Well sir, I've read some of your writing, Jackie, and you really are a talented writer, man. I, I would certainly encourage you to do more of that. Some people just have a flair for telling a great story. And uh, you certainly have that brother. So I would encourage you there. We're winding down and I have a couple of more things I wanted to ask you about. And if you don't mind on a more personal subject, the passing of your dad, you lost him to cancer and you wrote a piece that beautifully describes a food experience and food in particular, your mom's cooking was a big part of your family life. And the passage from your writing is you in the room as your dad is experiencing his last stages of life. And you wrote, quote, and then he breathed a sniff at first, then a deep, intentional inhale. The aroma hit him. His pupils contracted into focus, then awareness. A smile crept across his face as I watched the light return to my father's eyes, effervescent as ever. Dad called our names. He thanked us. He asked some legal questions, all while dunking scallops in hot sauce and scarfing them down like it was his last meal. He told Mom he loved her before fading back into oblivion. That was his penultimate moment of lucidity before he died. Three days after feeding my dad his last meal, I knelt by his bedside and held his hand until his pulse slowed to a stop. Part of what makes these moments precious is the knowledge that they are transitory. At some point, there will be a last everything we ever celebrate with mom, just as our final family seafood fest with dad was in his hospice bed, end quote. So we don't all get to experience the final moments with our loved ones. I missed those last breaths with both of my parents by a matter of hours. And I've always regretted that, Jackie. And I'm curious about how it felt to be there in that room holding his hand at
1: that moment. The update that I have for you is that I lost my mom in January. So like dad, I was with mom holding her hand and telling her how much I loved her as she took her last breaths. And it is surreal. In that there's the part of you that knows on an intellectual level, this is a good death. This is making sure that a person, as they transition to whatever is next, is being comforted by people who truly care for them. I know my dad and my mom left the world on their own terms and in the best possible way. But holy crap, it doesn't make it any easier to manage the grief. Yeah.
0: I'm so sorry, man. I did not realize that about your mom that she had passed. So my condolences to you, man. Thank you. Yeah, the grief, the immediacy of the grief, it does subside, but peace of you has left the planet, and you're never quite the same after that. Is that how you feel as well?
1: Brad, when my dad died 20 years ago, I immediately went into be strong for mom mode, and I spent 20 years Making sure mom had whatever she needed because she'd lost her life partner, to her husband in 56 years. And then mom died this past January. And suddenly I didn't have anybody to be strong for anymore. And I realized I had never actually grieved my dad. So now I'm grieving them both while I'm traveling the country launching this liquor brand. I say that to say the stuff that people see on Instagram is real. We are getting a ton of press. We are getting a ton of awards and lots of recognition. Sorella's showing up in cocktails around the country, but always look beyond the obvious. There's always more than what people see. There's always battles that are fought that are not talked about publicly. We're all struggling. If you can be kind.
0: Good words, man. Good words. And again, my condolences to you. So on of a lighter note and a happier note i know that you mentioned day drinking and i wanted to ask you what your favorite time of day was to have a glass of your famous product in describe your ideal setting jackie if you would
1: so the beautiful thing about sorel is it goes best with friends my morning starts early i pray i exercise i meditate I'm usually working by eight o'clock in the morning. I have very productive mornings. I go straight through to about noon, have my first meal because I intermittently fast. And then I go hard until about four o'clock. And by four o'clock, I'm looking at West Coast time, seeing if there's anything on the other side of the coast that needs my attention. If not, I like Sorel and ginger beer with a little bit of lime over ice. That is the best way to end a difficult day. And Ideally with people you care about.
0: Yes, sir. Sorrel with a little bit of ginger, fear over ice. I'm with you on that, man. Jackie Summers, so proud of you. Love the work that you're doing. Love your product and whatever we can do on this end to support you, man. You got us because you're a phenomenal story. Very proud of you, brother. Thank you for joining us today. An absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Brad. So the portion of the program I always look forward to, my dear sister, Ambassador Shabazz, and how we move. How about Jackie Summers, huh? He is really a testament to staying after it.
2: Staying after it, I mean, resilience, endurance, dare to be determined, overcoming things and following dreams, a bit of all that we all have to ascribed to as well. I was really excited to listen to his joy, his positive affirmations and how he approaches things in his life and the outcomes as a result. I think about him also as this Caribbean brother, albeit from Brooklyn, and that which he, like many of our focuses, bridges that gap between the lands before now and connecting those dots. When we think of both culinary
0: or medicinal
2: value of root food plants, the significance, you can have the flavor, the taste, and also a commercial component.
0: That's right. Now, are you a fan of sorrel as a beverage? As
2: a plant and as a beverage, I don't really imbibe much. That I know. But I certainly know the value of sorrel, both as a beverage and also it's a great soup. You can make a kind of puree or like the way you would make a split pea soup. You would simmer a pot of veggies in a stock of broth. If you're a vegetarian, you have another combination of what flavors that broth. Then you put the sorrel in for maybe, oh, I don't know, three minutes. So the leaf is tender like a spinach. And then you put it in a blender and then put it back in the pot. It's
0: delicious and it's good for you. I check you out with a little sorrel soup recipe. Yeah, that's right. It gets right into your system and... Does a body good, so to speak. That's right. That's right. I was really touched by Jackie's humility. He's been committed to this purpose. It's almost impossible for me to believe that it would have taken as long as it has to have an African-American distiller. Amazing.
2: And didn't know that he was doing that, becoming that. Or mm-hmm. that's where in ingenuity and innovation and just daring to follow our passion really just simply pays off. We underestimate how it's either populated or not, those particular, but I'm glad that he has made a product that we can all be the beneficiary of.
0: Yeah, me too. I, I'm like you, I'm not much of a drinker, but something about his day drink idea at four o'clock or whatever time he shuts down, I have to admit that it has some appeal. <laughs>
2: yeah. A <laughs> yeah.
0: little unplugging.
2: Would you, when you think about that toddy that people make or as people have been under the weather, that little bit that could be in a warm tea or added to something before going to bed or the medicinal component of it without it being a pastime.
0: Yeah, I would love to uh, have him join us the next time we're in New York at that authentic Indian restaurant that he described in the city.
2: Oh my God, okay, okay. So when you mentioned that, I when you mentioned Do- Domika. I have to say that I love the seasonings that's in East Indian cuisine. And he said it was authentic and not watered down or anything. So I'm looking forward to that. Put me on your, uh, at your table.
0: (laughs) It's you and me, of course. So tell me what what's going on? What have you been up to? I know you've been on the road and doing stuff and traveling all over the place and taking people places, so give us a little rundown.
2: I have to say, I do have to figure out if I need more sorrel natural sorrel in my diet just to keep up but I am so jazzed and thrilled by that which we are doing and the beneficiaries that are impacted in the various things and places that we are navigating, and also the opportunity to take delegations of people around with me on the road during the vacation times or breaks so that we can have just a growing posse of people who are not only impacting other lives, but are also getting something back. From the experience, I'm right now in Louisville, Kentucky, where I just came to host a table for the annual, ninth annual Muhammad Ali Humanitarian Awards. It's likened to the Kennedy Center Honors. And it was just stunning. It's a stunning evening. And Muhammad Ali had six poor core principles. And there are six international young people under the age of 30. And for the most part, they're under 25. That was just magnificent. You had stars like Dr. Fauci, who was astounding. A local hero, Alice Houston, who's also the mother of Alan Houston, the Knicks player, former Knicks WNBA player. Jose Andres, the chef who has fed people around the globe based on throughout this urgencies and that have taken place in the last five years. But then you have these five, six young people who have done miraculous things in their respective cities, towns, villages across the globe with no guidance other than a dream and fulfilling something that's missing and listening to them speak and articulate the reason. Some are refugees and just forging ahead. Where there was a gap, they filled it in. And then filling it in, they impacted, they touched the lives of others, they maximized those things. And people talk about, it, I think it was the best year ever. And each year is just astounding because of these young people.
0: What was the venue that it was held at?
2: This year we did it at the Muhammad Ali Center. Usually it's in a large grand ballroom, but COVID shifted that ball. And so we decided to bring it back home Sure, it's a, a fraction of the amount of people, but in its intimacy was most valued right now, and everyone is being a little conservative with expenditures as it relates to the drought that COVID put people in. But it was great. To, it's good to bring people not to Muhammad Ali Humanitarian Awards at another location, but instead at its home base.
0: Oh, beautiful! Absolutely. As you're talking about that, I'm thinking of all of the guests that we've had and the variety of people that we've had on the show and your travels and seminar and excursions that you go on. At one point, it would be great if we could pull together a week of inviting some of the folks we've had, combine them with some of the stuff you do, and plan ourselves somewhere and do something great.
2: I would love that.
0: It would be just too
2: what is it, bomb diggity? <laughs> We're putting it out there.
0: We're putting it out there yeah. in the universe. I love it. Yeah. I
2: love the idea. I think when I think about your guests, I'm like a fangirl to to them. They're just amazing. And I, I believe strongly that's the kind of potency that we have to nurture, yeah. the kinds of people that you've had on the corner table talk and who really want to be part of the world in a way that makes a difference, that prolongs who we are.
0: Absolutely. And the connectivity that we've always talked about, the intergenerational connectivity and how important that is for us to continue and foster.
2: That's exactly right. You see, you can tell I'm grinning because that idea just moves me greatly.
0: (laughs) And lots of sorrow to go around.
2: Lots of sorrow, man. (laughs) Now that we know that we can put sorrow soup on the menu. (laughs) Yeah,
0: I'm with that. Ambassador Shabazz and How We Move, That's How We Move. Nice to see you.
2: You too, my dear.